Hello, and welcome to the Unheard Weekly Podcast. I'm Charlie Pickles, Managing Editor, and I'm delighted to be standing in for Aisha Hazarika, who is currently at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Last week on Unheard, we ran a series of articles looking at open versus closed, the political categorisation displacing left and right. It's clear that in Western democracies, we are witnessing a political realignment. The success of populist parties has rendered the old political dichotomy inadequate. But today, we're asking, is open versus close really any better? Those who are open are characterised as outward-looking, pro-globalisation, pro-the-free movement of people against borders. Broadly speaking, supranational institutions take priority over the nation-state. Those deemed closed, on the other hand, are pro-the nation-state. They tend to hold a very strong sense of national identity. They're protectionist and want to see restrictions on immigration. The former is socially liberal, the latter socially conservative. As Peter Franklin pointed out in his in-depth essay for us in the series, the terms open and closed, though, are hardly neutral. And as James Bloodworth put it in his article for Unheard, it is, quotes, a label that is at once flattering to half of the equation and damning to the other. Which raises another important question for us. Are the open side of the equation really that open if they disparage those who hold different views? To be open-minded, you surely have to be open to different ideas, to be unprejudiced. To discuss this today, I am thrilled to be joined by political scientist Matthew Goodwin, who has a new book out in October called National Populism, and also by The Times columnist David Aronovich. We're going to focus on the issues that seem most deeply to divide these camps. But before we go into specifics, I do think it's worth asking both Matthew and David, do you think that open versus closed is a useful categorisation, given the profound changes we're seeing in politics today. David, perhaps I can start with you. Well, not if it's um, uh, going to be used in a kind of good versus bad sense, then it's not going to be a useful categorisation at all. It's, uh, um, if, it, it's only really a useful categorisation, really, if the people on either side recognise themselves either in the category or, or, or aren't automatically uh, disparaged by it. Um, We've had various attempts at trying to construct a um, a distinction. I mean, the first thing I think we should say, obviously, is that most people will be a mixture of whatever it is that we're talking about uh, most of the time. They will represent various trends and various sets of ideas within themselves and so on. And one of the things that sometimes gets lost, because we often over-determine when we see a particular kind of movement, one of the things that gets lost is, if you like, the kind of more subtle changes and the long-term demographic changes um, uh, which which push up behind something. I was talking to a friend today about the fact that the generation that he and I represent uh, represent were not fathered in in the way that people are parented or fathered now, which simply weren't. There was a massive degree of social change over the course of 50 years and now people are very, very different. We never had a word or a term for it, but you can imagine that it entered the kind of social psychology of of people in various countries. Um, The other thing that we're not clear about is whether what we're seeing um, uh, is... A, a long t- a, a represents, if you like, a kind of long-term change, uh, uh, a revolt, uh, as, as as Matthew tends to put it, um, 
in other words, whether it's longer than, if you like, a kind of revolt, a, a temporary um, pushback against certain sorts of developments, against the uncertainties uh, and the disruptions of the globalised of the globalised world, or whether what you're seeing is some kind of fundamental realignment. And I think. The truthful answer is, when we come down to it, is that we don't know uh, and that you can actually pose it, uh, you can actually put it in either direction. Now, having been superbly unhelpful to your your, uh, uh, original uh, uh, question, uh, it does seem to me, however, that there is one thing that we can make, perhaps make a distinction. And I see it all the time. I see it all the time in the way in which people interact with me and I I see them framing uh, the debate. It cannot be said to be anything other than true that we live through a time of significant international interdependence where things that go on in one place have a very big impact uh, elsewhere. We live in a time of unparalleled levels of knowledge about other countries, other places, how they work and are affected by significantly uh, by what they do and sometimes extraordinarily immediately. Um, uh, and uh, that we live in a time of significant international mobility. It's not the biggest time of international mobility, nor necessarily always is it in percentage terms the biggest time of international mobility if we're talking about migration. But nevertheless, it is significant. And that and that means kind of, if you like, kind of cross-cultural um, uh, phenomenon, people coming across each other who haven't really come across each other uh, before, which are also uh, pretty significant and if you want to be very broad about it, you could say that, and people like David Goodhart have characterised somewheres and anywheres and so on, which I think there's some virtue to, but also some problems. But if you could characterise it in general, you could say that there is an, an ideological position that says this is our situation, so we should frame our policies to make the best of it. And there is an ideological position that broadly says we don't want this to be our situation and we must try to resist it. And in that sense, in that sense uh, alone, you might be able to frame that as closed versus open. And that... Um, echoes actually what Tony Blair, who I think was the first person to use the sort of political phrase open versus closed, said back in 2006, which was the difference is um, whether we embrace the challenge of more open societies, which I think, David, is your point that kind of, you know, we have a status quo, we are where we are, do we embrace that? Or uh, Blair said, do we do we effectively put up the defences? Do we build the defences? Um, Matthew, there clearly is that divide is the term, is the phrasing of open versus closed helpful? And does it accurately represent where we find ourselves in at the moment? Well, I think it's useful just to, before I answer that question, and I will, just to step back and kind of give you the one minute view um, among kind of my world of sort of academics who look at elections and voting and just give you what the kind of consensus basically is, which is we've we've had two silent revolutions in the West, which are now having profound political and social effects. The first really started in the 1960s and um, early 1970s among uh, a generation of voters, uh, the baby boomers and, and their, later their kids, um, who were able, unlike the, the great generation, the silent generation, were really able to benefit from 
the mass expansion of higher education and, of course, in most Western democracies, the 30 glorious years of economic expansion. And, and that really had an effect on their values in that, you know, they, they weren't worried about, you know, where do I get food from? How do I survive? They were able, uh, they, you know, able to spend the time, the energy thinking about, you know, more lifestyle-related issues. How do I save the environment? How do I ensure rights for women? How do I ensure rights for minorities? How can I... Uh, actively work for civil rights in the US? How can I stop nuclear war? All of this kind of stuff. And that first silent revolution really uh, encouraged the spread of socially liberal um, values um, pioneered really by university educated uh, voters who also tended to then concentrate in the same social context and they also tended to align with left-wing left social movements or parties, which explains the rise of the Greens and also partly how social democrats like Blair later on would adapt to meet the needs of, of that constituency on, uh, in terms of that social policy, in terms of being sort of you know cosmopolitan internationalists and so on. Now, what um, that silent counter-revolution really did is it laid the foundation for um, what would follow and what we're still living through now, which is the silent counter-revolution to that. And that really began in the late 1970s, 1980s and 90s. It was really prominent um, uh, both in, in the US and Europe. It was, it was effectively the foundation of that was, was Reagan and Thatcher. But those governments really legitimized the rise of a more kind of populist um, uh, style to that politics, which found its expression in groups like you know, Jean-Marie Le Pen in France, York Haider in Austria, lots of parties that we conveniently forget now because we think populism must be unique to our contemporary uh, world. Um, and gradually through the 90s and the 2000s, that counter-revolution really began to, to, to set down roots. And it was really led by groups of voters that didn't participate in this liberal consensus, right? They might be traditional social conservatives, they might be quite affluent, but they hold socially conservative values. Or they might be blue collar workers who hadn't been able to enjoy the luxury of higher education, the university, uh, felt that they were not benefiting from this current uh, social uh, uh, settlement. And those groups over time gradually came together to support movements that wanted to push the dial back uh, more toward a conservative, uh, sort of socially conservative uh, state of affairs. So that in general is why we are here where we are, which is a more polarised electorate, right? So it's been a long time, long time coming, isn't going to go anywhere, started long before the Great Recession. And those two value blocks in very broad terms have now been politicised. One side has realized it's got agency, namely those that felt, hang on, we're not comfortable with the liberal consensus. They can now look at your Brexits, your Trumps, your Farages, your Salvinis, and, and they can say, well, look, actually, someone's speaking for me. But then on the other side, you've got the Democrats, the social Democrats, in some countries, a radical left, kind of you know, green movements, uh, delinquent in Germany, doubling down and saying, no, actually, we're going to put our feet you know, we're going to dig our heels in and defend what we've accomplished over the last 20, 30 years. And that polarization is just going to carry on in the trench. But here's a problem with that. And this is where I answer your question. We've responded to it by saying, OK, so one group is open, one group is closed. One group is anywheres, one group is somewheres. One group's the winners of globalization. The other group's the losers of globalization. We've gone into this incredibly binary debate, right? And we've completely lost sight of the fact that even amid those two silent revolutions. There's still a hell of a lot of diversity within uh, electorates and within populations. So if you look at Europe, for example, the largest group of voters in Europe today are not the groups at the, at the extremes. They're not the 
you know, federalists who want an open internationalist Europe that's much bigger and has no borders, and they're not the rejectors who say, let's tear the whole thing down. They are basically frustrated, right? They're sort of slightly uh, discontented with the current settlement. They're willing to be won over by the case for European integration, but they are certainly not what I would call a true believer, right? They're not fundamentalist in, in terms of their values. They do lean instinctively towards one way because our current environment is very threatening, it's very destabilizing, and when humans feel under threat, they tend to kind of really cling to those conservative values and they're more likely to, to sort of you know, bring those into their political uh, behavior. But there's a lot more diversity than this binary debate that we're having would, would ever let us believe. But the, but the bottom point, and then I'll be quiet, the bottom fundamental point here is what we are seeing playing out in the West now started about 50, 60 years ago uh, and still has a long way to run. Okay, so let's take one of the big dividing topics, probably the biggest, certainly the most emotive topic, um, which is immigration. And there does certainly seem to be quite a gap between those who are pro-free movement, kind of pro-open borders, and those who um, really do quite strongly want to see restrictions on immigration. And, and, you know, that may not be quite being anti-immigration, but certainly there is a sense that we have gone too far. Um, We've seen that in America, we've seen that in Britain. If you look at Italy, if you look at Germany, you know, immigration is is probably the the top topic. Um, Matthew, you've talked and written a lot about um, the role immigration has played, particularly in the Brexit vote um, here in the UK. What do you think is driving the backlash? So you mentioned there kind of, you know, that there's a the whole mix of sort of economic, social, cultural issues. Why is immigration, if you like, the sort of the match that lit the populist fire? Well, I mean, I think if you if you just look at the life cycle of you know, the movements that we're talking about um, and where I disagree with sort of some of my colleagues and lots of people that I think politically would align on the left and say, well, actually, this is all about economics and this is about people feeling as though jobs and GDP are under threat from migration and so on. Um, the, the rise of this counter-revolution really did coincide with uh, higher rates of immigration into Europe and the US, and then it basically accelerated uh, during the late 90s and 2000s, and then accelerated again during the refugee crisis um, that we're still kind of grappling with uh, in Europe. And it's not it's not a sense that, um, it's not about objective numbers, right? So we know that people aren't objectively saying, well, you know, this is a number of immigrants in my country, and this is a level at which I feel under threat. We've always known that public attitudes to migration are subjective. That you know, if you look at the Brexit vote, it was strongest not only in all white communities that had very little immigration, which a lot of Remainers told themselves in the aftermath to say, oh, you know, look at these stupid idiots that have never even encountered somebody that doesn't look like them. It was also in areas that had experienced a very sharp influx of of migration over a very short period of time. And that's a crucial point, that if you look at all the evidence on the Trump vote, if you look at all the evidence on support for the radical right in Europe, uh, it's pretty consistent in showing that support basically spikes in areas that might be 90%, 95% kind of white, but have experienced quite sharp demographic change over a short period of time or have witnessed that 
um, nearby. So if you look at Central and Eastern Europe, that's a nice example. People say, well, why are they so kind of xenophobic or conservative? Well, you know, they are partly looking at the West with horror because it's sort of, to them, it seems that we've kind of doubled down on this liberal vision, which is diluting the national community and undermining kind of the nation state. Uh, and they're depopulating at the same time, which has made that sense of threat especially pronounced. But it is that sense of threat that's absolutely key, that if you already hold those conservative values or you hold a more radical version of conservative values, what social psychologists would call authoritarian values, then there's a lot of evidence now to show that when people feel that their wider group is under threat, not just them, but they feel that their wider community is challenged by the arrival of people that don't look like them or don't act like them or culturally, and this is a crucial point, culturally are quite different from them, then they 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 backlash politically, that they will mobilise to push back against that perceived threat. And again, I say it's perceived it's not necessarily objective, it's a perceived sense of threat. And David, actually just this week in your Times column, you talked about um, the rise of ethno-nationalism or, or I suppose nativism. And how much, I mean, Matthew there is is sort of is effectively saying that there is a sense amongst some of these populations that um, national values, if you like, are being eroded in some way and that it might actually not be a, you know, a tangible impact, but there's this sense, this feeling of it. Is a form of nativism, a form of um, placing national values at the kind of you know, top of the the top of the priorities um, legitimate or, or is this just a pure ethno-nationalism and, and something which is pretty deplorable to use Hillary Clinton's words? Um Hillary Clinton's highly qualified words, by the way, uh, just in case. And then it was interesting to me <clears throat> that when you characterise this discussion right at the beginning, you characterise people who are against immigration as people who were not necessarily against all kind of immigration, but just thought they'd been too much. But you characterise people who were broadly in favour of immigration as people in favour of open borders. Uh, and you were wrong. Now, you're wrong to do that. Um, and it betrayed, I'm afraid to say, the prejudice that lies to a certain extent behind part of this discussion that we can sometimes have, particularly on the centre on the centre right. Um, I know almost no one who's in favour of open borders. I've I've nearly never met any. You know, just let's not have a passport thing. Let anybody kind of walk in, etc., and so on. Um, uh, people who tend to be in favour of immigration um, uh, tend to state its positive nature in terms of rejuvenating societies and so on. Some of them tend to to uh, recognise recognize, if you like, a kind of inevitability about the movement and the desire for uh, uh, people to uh, move and better themselves and so on. Some of them, like me, might come from third generation immigrant families where uh, what we think was experienced by our grandparents is pretty much the same kind of language, just altered very slightly from the beginning of the 20th century to, to now, to what people experience now. And I suppose partially we're blindsided to a certain extent by the way in which people, I mean, Matthew, I, I don't incidentally disagree with almost any, I hardly disagree with a single thing that Matthew was saying in his characterization uh, of this, of this discussion. Um, uh, uh, except one of the big problems that pro-immigration people have is that anti-immigration people continuously set the argument in terms of economics. Just they do it all the time. Um, uh, and the problem with that is, is that it disguises the cultural reasons which they may say they have. Because actually, when you ex when you talk about what those cultural reasons are, why you would not want other people who are not quite like you around, it doesn't sound great, does it? 
Think it through. Um, but if you say, I'm against migration because people take my jobs, take jobs, and they, um, and they send wages down, uh, and they put a particular kind of economic pressure on parts of the, uh, parts of the country, that is not about my attitudes towards incomers and so on. That is about a kind of a set of objectives. So as soon as you start arguing about this, and you win the argument, because you almost always win the argument about economics on migration, the economics of migration are on the whole enormously positive, then in that case, somebody will turn around and say, well, you're talking about the wrong thing. You should have been talking about culture all the time. Uh, and I think that's something that Matthew's got profoundly correct, really. I mean, as far as my, my reading of it, directly after Brexit and directly after Trump, people made an enormous kind of amount of trumpeting about the left behind economically and so on. Um, and actually, when you looked at what the demographics of voting were, that just didn't seem to correlate in that kind of a way. Now, there are other kinds of correlations, frankly. And one of the things I was trying to point out this week, uh, in a sense, is the way in which, say, People who consider themselves to be Republicans who once would have endorsed, uh, if you like, George W. Bush and his openness, now as Republicans endorse Donald Trump and what you might call his closeness because he's their guy. And there's a kind of, and that's a strange kind of, and I don't know quite know how some, a phenomenon like that fits, if you like, uh, into uh, Matthew's two uh, silent revolutions, except to remind ourselves that people have all kinds of reasons for doing the sorts of things, for doing the sorts of things that they do. So when we talked about the Trump phenomenon or the Brexit phenomenon, the immediate tendency was to push down on a, what was actually a very small section of the electorate, in fact, and look at it as if it actually kind of stood in. Uh, and partly that was because people said, oh, well, we've never looked at these people before. And to a certain extent, that was true. Um, and what was interesting, I think, about Matthew's work in Revolt from the Right and, and, and Robert Ford's work was that they had actually begun to look at these people uh, 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 along with other people as well. So let's go back to Matthew's point, which is the right point. If your objection to migration is a cultural one, then it comes back to your question about what is uh, legitimate. How do we discuss that? I mean, seriously, how do you have a debate about your... Uh, do you do it when Nigel Farage says, as he famously did, I got on the train at Cannon Street or wherever he got on the train and I didn't hear a single English, uh, English, uh, uh, a bit of English spoke until I got to this station, etc. Uh, fairly unusual train, but it can possibly happen. And people feel uncomfortable with that, he said, and they did. And they were right to do so. OK. Should we frame policies around the discomfort of people who are uncomfortable hearing other accents and other languages spoken in their country? Is that, is that the best way in which we can march uh, together into the 21st century? In, into, the, uh, into the 21st century? And I think the problem is that, that it isn't. But I'm also persuaded that the best thing to do is not to immediately turn around to somebody like that and say, you're a racist and you're out of the national debate and I'm not having a discussion with you, sod off. I'm also fairly sure that that's, that's the case. So one of the other things that I'm really worried about is not, you know, I am a liberal on, on immigration, but I am worried about the politics of identity and of polarisation, which is something that we're, that, that we're coming to on, on, on all sides. The incapacity to have a discussion about the things that trouble, trouble us in their own real terms. And by the way, while we're on that kind of business, um, 
you at the moment it's open season on liberals uh, it seems to me you can say what you like about liberals etc only liberals sneer if you notice that no one else sneers only liberals sneer uh, I have been sneered at more times as a liberal by illiberals than I think I can count, that, that, that I can possibly count. But that's just getting a little thing off my chest now. The um, the point that you made about language, I think, is a really important one because uh, if you look at how I don't want to say that you know, the liberal consensus and lump everybody sort of <laughs> into that because there are very different different traditions within that. But um, what would have been a good reply? to the Trump and Brexit moments, right? That's the question. That's the interesting one, which is clearly this was, uh, in the US and Europe, or in US and Britain, this was a clear attempt by certain groups of voters that felt left behind not only economically, and this is a crucial point about the left behind tag, they also felt left behind by the values that were now dominating media and politics. Um, what would what would have been a good reply to them? Well, I've always argued that a good reply would have been actually to be pragmatic and start to rebuild a consensus in the middle between these two broad value sets, if you like. And that's where my frustration with, say, to come to David's point about liberals in general, is that there was no display, no imagination, no kind of okay, we've actually lost a couple of big arguments here or we are on our way to losing these arguments. Can we revive uh, this conversation and come up with some ideas? Now, one obvious reply to Brexit and, or, and to, or to Trump, for example, would have been to look at, well, what is it that people are really concerned about when it gets to this issue of immigration? Now, if you look at, say, the Pew Research Centre, they've said to people, what do you think is the most important criteria of being in the national community? What, what do you really value? And over 90%, 85-90% across the the West say, I, I really want people to at least be able to speak the language that uh, others speak in the national community, speak the national language. Secondly, uh, people say, I'd like people to respect laws, to obey the laws of this land. And then they say, I would about 50%, 55, 60% say, I'd like people to share customs and traditions, or at least sort of, you know, make an effort to to, 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 to to doing so. The least popular, by the way, is I really want people to have been born in this country, right? And that ethnic nationalism, that kind of virulent 1930s ethnic nationalism, really, uh, you know, it's there still, obviously, but it is not as 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 widespread as some of the coverage since Brexit and Trump would have you believe. Liberalism has actually won a couple of really important battles over the last 60 years that you don't hear much about, and that, I would argue, is one of them. But it does mean that liberals need to say, OK, so we need a new settlement on these issues, but we can have a settlement that is broadly progressive. We could say language is a really important area where we have to actually legislate and we have to uh, take action in order to ensure that at least people feel that they can communicate with others, not just in the national community, because the national community is more than that to people. The nation state is their home. They want to be able to converse with people in their home. I mean, that, you know, and I think that is something where you could clearly just take but some action. But here's the irony, uh, Matthew. Um, uh, I mean, firstly, there's an awful lot to be unpacked about what it means, what specific policies that would lead to and what their impact would be. But, for instance, uh, at the same time as the Conservative government of David Cameron introduced the immigration cap because it felt it had to say, essentially, the way in which it had been traditionally done was you said to people you're keeping the numbers down and people say, OK, well, in that case, I'm all right. I'm all right with that. They also cut the amount of money which was available to teaching people English. 
Um, it was an absolute kind of it was an absolute kind of classic. Not that there is a huge problem about people not being able to speak English. By the way, well, there is a there is an issue. No, no, there is there is, oh, there, there is an issue of uh, a, a, of a degree of segregation in certain certain localities and so on. But by and large, if we talk about immigration as a kind of a, a, as a phenomenon, most immigrants speak English pretty quickly after coming here, and certainly down to the second generations second generations too. It's not. It's a perception problem. It's not a real problem. That's part of the problem with framing policies for a perception problem rather than uh, rather than a real problem. The second thing is that immigrants are probably rather more likely to respect laws than non-immigrants. Almost all the statistics tell us so. So that also is a perception problem. How do you deal with the perception problem? Your third problem in this, Matthew, and this is really for going back to somewhere like uh, uh, Orban in Hungary, but you can also see it here, is that there are also political forces whose main appeal to their constituency is to construct an image of immigrants not speaking English, of not obeying laws, and so on, and actually sometimes to manufacture stories, effectively, which are against... Now, as a third generation, as, as the grandson of uh, Jewish uh, uh, immigrants to this country and who sat in a ghetto in the East End, this is very familiar stuff. Now, in Hungary, whereas you quite quietly say they've lost population and they have nearly no immigrant population, um, I don't hate this new word, weaponized, etc., but you can kind of forgive it under this circumstance. The fear, potential fear, as you say, of what else is supposed to have happened in Western Europe, incidentally, which has, incidentally hasn't stopped all these other Hungarians going to live in these other countries in Western Europe, by the way, because that's where their youth have gone and actually have actually are, has led to an anti-immigration uh, uh, um, uh, uh, exploitation, which is, uh, and it's, it's happened in other places as well, which is unnegotiable. You can't actually negotiate with it. There's nothing for you to come to. So coming back, therefore, to your point, post-Brexit, post-Trump, uh, post um, in the first instance, if there was a national community that required to reach out to another group of people after Brexit, it was not the Liberals to the Brexiteers. The fundamental mistake which people, I'm pretty sure, will say was made after the 2016 referendum was the way in which the people who won the referendum slammed the door in the faces of the people who'd lost it and told them to sod off, really, essentially. More or less just said, bugger off. You know, May's closed uh, um, uh, citizens of the world speech, however she actually meant it, and then the antics of various kind of Brexiteers. And the second thing is, how do you negotiate a new settlement with Donald Trump or with the people who are now currently represented uh, by Donald Trump at the most kind of militant level. Um, now, the answer is you're going to have to form coalitions underneath them uh, and so on. With Brexit is a specific problem because people who uh, believe that um, uh, coming out of the European Union under, ter uh, under certain sort of terms is an actual catastrophe for their children, their grandchildren, are not likely easily to be reconciled uh, and they're not going to be. And, that's why I and I think that's a very big error you make. Um, you make it in uh, uh, in a piece. It was entirely to be anticipated that, given what Brexiteers did with their what they thought their mandate was in the wake of, in the wake of June 2016, it was entirely to be anticipated that people would turn around and say, "We're not having that." That is a thing we're not having. You know, whatever you might kind of expect us to kind of reach out to X, Y, and Z, we can't be having that because we think that's a disaster. Um, so I would frame it. Uh, I would frame it in the other way. If let's say, let's say for a moment that there was this battle between your two silent revolutions, and you try and find a halfway point. 
That's not going to be done but just by, if you like, this one tribe of liberals being so liberal that they actually reach out to another group that are telling them essentially to piss off. I want to move, I guess, up a level to talk about the role of the nation state then. So um, we've discussed at, I suppose, a more community or individual level how people are feeling. And there's an awful lot in there, which I'm sure Matthew will want to respond to. And and likewise, um, David, you will have thoughts on. But can I come to you, David, first? So you yourself there just commented on... um, Theresa May's reference to, I think it was Citizens of Nowhere. Um, and this has been, again, you, you commented at the beginning of the discussion on, on David Goodhart's book and the somewheres and the anywheres. Um, do you think there is a fundamental problem with the idea that a country should come first before a global community. Do, do, do you think that the people who see themselves first and foremost as British, American, German um, are wrong to see it in that way? No, I don't. I think they're right to see it in that way. Um, uh, it's, it's a much more problematic question than you suggest because let's break it down a little bit more. Should you be Catalan first and Spanish second, Scottish first and British second and so on? It is perfectly possible to have a series of multiple identities, but there are very good, you know, nation states by and large, not all of them, by, you know, there are states that we effectively help create through colonialism that have nearly no real fundamental basis for existence. But over time, nation states are a pretty solid first level tier of organisation for people and point of uh, and point of identification. Uh, that these things can you know, be, be varied, you only have to look at Wales versus England during the rugby period to know that there are you know there are lots of different things going on there so i don't think that's a problem at all you know just as i wouldn't have argued at the point where the wall came down that germany should have said well now this is a very good opportunity for us not to unify but to dissolve our country into in, in, in into something else altogether I, I think it is important Anybody who says that the nation state is utterly unimportant and has no significance and has no validity, it's sometimes a little bit like the conversation we have about, you know, the royal family. And, uh, you know, I would have once been a Republican on the basis that how can you support this sort of, you know, strange uh, uh, excrescence, etc. Then after a while, you begin to realise that firstly, it does no harm, particularly uh, in the case of the royal family. And secondly, it does represent a point of identification and legitimacy, which gives people uh, some anchoring in life. And I think the nation state is a very good and useful place for for, for that anchoring. But, and here comes the but, a significant proportion of the problems we have to deal with, firstly, all countries are not the same size. So when you are having to deal in a world which has China in it, it's no use really saying, well, you know, that's good, you know, they'll... Uh, we'll deal with them on a one-to-one basis because they will roll over you because they're so much bigger and so much more important and their ideology might be might be different. So in that situation, and the European Union makes an enormous amount of sense for the countries of uh, Europe to get together and say we have a series of shared interests and shared organisations and so on which we can which we, we, we which we can intensify. Um, the same with international alliances such as NATO, and then the same again with other um, supranational bodies which with which we have to cooperate, international courts and so on, because we require. Uh, an international and global response to problems that are increasingly global. Climate change 
is not a thing which you can tackle on an individual country level and expect to get a result. It's just simply not. Um, we've also seen that attempts to control um, uh, massive refugee crises, I mean, Syrian crisis is, is an absolute kind of classic. Millions of people displaced, we don't want to get involved, sit back, etc., maybe put a bit of money into Jordan. Uh, Two million nearly people in Turkey, one million people in Jordan, for God's sake, and 1.3 million in Lebanon. These are really small countries. And guess what? Eventually, those people are on the move because those countries can't hold them anymore, etc., and we get a refugee crisis that was absolutely and entirely predictable and to which the only proper response was an international response and a European Union response, at which point all the countries turn around and say, not us, governor. We, we, we don't want it. That was not a failure of, um, of the concept of an, international, of an international response. It pointed up the necessity for the international response and it also pointed to the failure of national response because we, we, we couldn't deal with it politically, it seems to me. And an enormous amount of what's happened in the future, talk about the most florid right-wing uh, emanations since 2015, I think Matthew's absolutely right about this, I've written it myself, I think are down to people's sense that everything was out of control during the refugee crisis of 2015. And Matthew, this idea of the nation state, now clearly that has to be built on a set of presumably values, on a kind of national identity. So I wondered whether you would want to reflect on some of uh, David's comments around sort of, you know, what, what we might, as you were saying, kind of require of everybody who lives within a nation state, but also just picking up on that point that there clearly are you know, very knotty challenges which will require um, cross-country responses. But does that really require um, something like a European Union where people feel like sovereignty has been handed over or is there a better or a different way of approaching that? Well, that's a big question. Um, let me say just to begin with that uh, I think one of the big myths that uh, has has kind of gone gone mainstream is that you if you if you believe passionately in in the nation or you have a strong sense of national attachment that that somehow precludes you from accepting that nations need to work together internationally to solve big problems i mean this is one of the great arguments that's constantly lobbed about that if you voted for brexit or trump somehow you don't want to work internationally in order to remedy these problems i mean it's just I think a, a, a mischaracterization of who these who these voters are. Um, but the second the second point, you know, I've spent a lot of time rereading stuff on the formation of of national identity in Britain and more specifically England, and trying to get my head around kind of who 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 we are, if you like, um, and 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 with an eye on Brexit and kind of where we are today. And I mean that some of that work I think is particularly interesting in basically making the argument whether you read kind of leftish writers and Linda Colley you know, whether you read right wing writers like Robert Toombs and so on they kind of all converge on on the same point which is that the fundamentals that ultimately led to Brexit were baked in centuries ago that if you just look at the formation of of Britishness and more specifically Englishness it was always really defined against what was on the continent and in particular against concentrated power and against sort of threatening others as they were seen to be and then along came a sort of you know jingoistic press and a irresponsible political leaders and that sort of fanned the flames and we've never really one of my frustrations about the brexit discussion at least is just even among kind of you know, what you might call sort of you know just the media you know 
class or the, the chattering classes, whatever. Um, we've never actually had that discussion about Englishness that we should have had, and people like Mike Kenny and John Denham have tried to get it going. It just never really happened. Immigration and the nation state, the idea of sovereignty, the impact of globalisation are are big dividing lines, albeit as uh, both David and Matthew have pointed out, there is a great um, diversity of views within that. Nonetheless, there does seem to be a split and in, in broadly speaking, two camps. Um, culture probably underpins both those things. And David, you've already mentioned um, identity politics and the fact that we've seen a great rise in identity politics, which does seem by definition to pit people against uh, other people. Um, you also made the point, David, that uh, liberals are particularly under attack at the moment um, and that uh, you know people sort of seem to see them as kind of fair game, if you like, given, um, uh, I guess, the fact that most of our institutions are, are on the whole... Um, I guess, headed up by or run um, by people who would typically call themselves liberals and we have had a sort of liberal consensus, if that's the way of putting it. Um, there does nonetheless seem to be a view that those people, if you like, let's let's call them closed for the moment, um, those people who perhaps have values that, that might be described, to use a kind of American term, as sort of family, faith and flag, that their sort of worldview is in some way morally inferior to the more open worldview. Uh, do you see any element of that? So can I ask why we characterise it in this way? Why would you not equally characterise it that people who believe in family, faith and flag think that liberal values are inferior? Well, I think that possibly could be the case. No, but you didn't say it. Then let's say that and, there and, is and a... And you didn't say it, and no one does, actually, and I'm not just kind of getting at you, but this is, uh, if, you, if you don't mind me saying so, I think this is part of the kind of uh, problem we have, which is we, we set this up as if the Liberals are the eternal actors doing unto these other people what is then done unto them. Now, I can tell you that speaking as somebody who grew up as a young leftist, I saw the establishment as not being liberal at all. I saw it as being incredibly Tory, very reactionary, headed off by people who were in public schools, etc., and who had a lot of money. And I didn't say... And one of the reasons why you can have a kind of, you know, if you're going to have... You can have a kind of left-wing populism is a reaction against an establishment that doesn't appear to be liberal at all. It hasn't been liberal so quite often in the in the immediate past our institutions have been dragged screaming towards if you want a kind of quasi-liberal position and there aren't that many conservatives now um, who say yeah let's toughen up on divorce let's make divorce much more difficult than it was and um uh, and uh, you know Let's return to the kind of things which the the liberals enforced upon us as values, which we didn't really want, but which we'd now like to return to. Maybe maybe we'd like to return to the idea that women can't own their own property, because that was a really hard... That kept families together, because you couldn't leave your bloody husband. But if you ex if you accept that currently, and, you know, probably through New Labour, certainly through Cameron, um, we do have uh, institutions which broadly would be categorised as on the liberal end. Um, you still haven't really answered my question. Do you question, think Mrs Thatcher was a is, liberal? Which is why I started at, at, well, I mean, yes, arguably economically, not socially, okay, which is where okay. one Ms. of the divisions Mrs Thatcher is. also set up Channel 4. Um, one of the reasons she wanted to do that was to provide uh, a, 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 a 
competition to the existing monopoly of the BBC and to a certain extent of ITV. Channel 4, uh, because it was appealing to younger viewers, etc., became one of the most, if you like, the kind of liberal uh, 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 broadcasters, uh, broadcasters in Britain. Um, when Mrs. Thatcher confronted the AIDS crisis in 1984, all of a sudden we found a government talking openly about things which had previously been suppressed. Quite a large part of the population never heard of anal sex until Margaret Thatcher effectively told them about it um, in the adverts about how to have uh, about how to have safe sex and so on. So actually, these dis- these distinctions. These distinctions don't exist in people in quite that way. But, but, I, but there in is other words, still people, a, pe- there is still a definite sense, um, and Matthew, perhaps you can come in on this, that those people who hold quotes traditional values, if that's the way we can put it, are um, are in some way. Uh, I don't know, morally inferior maybe is not the phrase, but they are in some way backwards, perhaps, in some way stupid. Well, we certainly believe that when it comes to, let's say, Muslim communities, um, where those conservative values might include arranged and maybe sometimes even forced marriages uh, and so on. Uh, And we certainly, um, uh, I don't think it is any part of uh, of an argument. I mean, it is quite possible, therefore, that these, that some of these um, sexual societies are the most conservative that you're talking about and the most uh, traditional values, isn't it? Or let's say very uh, ultra-orthodox Jewish communities and so on. But, but blue yet, labour, yet, blue hold labour on, hold on. But when people, themselves. but when people talk about the problem of immigration, they almost always point to these illiberalities on the part of these coming in communities as being somehow un-British and yet you're now pushing them back to me as people who themselves believe more in these traditional values. I'm not saying that isn't that contradiction doesn't exist but let's at least be aware that it is a contradiction. But in other words people use liberalism you, know, you call traditionalists use liberalism to attack other traditionalists who they don't like very much and whose, uh, whose traditionalism they find more alien. Is that not right? I'm, sh- I'm sure that is right, but it still doesn't change the fact that there is a whole swathe of of people out there who do not feel that their set of values are being well represented, and it's it's easy for us to start to step what are away we talking? from that. Okay, okay, but Michelle, what like, we talk- for example, what, what, but what are you for talking example, about here? Marriage, you know, kind of traditional uh, family units, that kind of stuff. Most people which get married, get, and most people have traditional family units, which doesn't get discussed very often um, in in politics. Uh, in government, in our more liberal institutions. I want to bring Matthew yeah, in. Well, He's I was been just going, very quietly I, no, I was there, just but. listening, thinking, what, just trying to get my own thoughts on that. And um, I don't think you can realistically argue that there's not been a liberal consensus, particularly since the late 1990s, well, from there until today, which has seen largely people that hold a socially liberal outlook dominate large parts of the... Uh, uh, Westminster community, media community, with obvious, with obvious exceptions, some few obvious exceptions, and also large parts of the arts uh, and culture. I mean, that's pretty clear if you look at all the stats in the Social Mobility Commission. If you and that, it, and partly, you know, that what we're talking about here, I think, is the increasingly inward, uh, inward-looking nature, or in particular in politics, which has seen legislatures across the West increasingly be dominated by highly educated, uh, highly affluent uh, politicians. And 
if you look at books like White Collar Government in the US, or if you look at books like Diploma Democracy in Europe, they sort of document this trend in which liberal democracy in general has turned in on itself and become less representative of society as a whole. Now, that's not to say that everybody within those legis- legislatures is kind of holding this open internationalist, you know, kind of hyper-liberal view of the world that's saying open borders and is great and internationalism is wonderful, but it is actually the case that um, just you know, putting the points about the 1980s to one side, by the time you get to the Brexit referendum for, for argument's sake, um, most people in the uh, opinion-making areas of British society had converged on the ideas that pro-immigration and pro-EU membership were basically you know, where Britain should be. I mean, that, that was obvious. I mean, it was reflected in the shock that permeated through the country when people voted for... For the for the other option that people sort of couldn't understand, you know why this was the case, and um, you know, so I think speaking in broad terms, you know, that liberal consensus has been has been there. Um, there are some nuances which are important, and I think David's alluding to them. I mean, if you look at Europe, for example, we're now getting the first studies coming through that are showing that some of the people that are most drawn to national populism are pro. LGBT, right, at ease with same-sex marriage and so on, but feel fundamentally anxious about Islam, right, that you're beginning to see very uh, sort of curious, um, interesting sort of uh, outlooks that you wouldn't have seen in the 90s and the 80s. But that general sense that... I don't really want the nation state to be part of a supranational organization. I don't particularly feel comfortable with mass uh, immigration or uncontrolled immigration. And I would like to reassert traditional, the traditional family unit and um, those, that those ideas, those that ideas that last among social, we the among other two, social conservatives. Yeah, no, but we're talking about the So take, take, I mean, if you look at support for same-sex marriage, for example, across, say in the, in the US or in the UK, I mean, it's basically increased significantly over the last you know, three to four decades. And these are the things that I say, these are the triumphs of liberalism, right? Partly that, you know, they have been, they have won important battles. Uh, support for interracial marriage, for example, has rocketed over the last 50 years. Um, but when, in every Western democracy, there are still groups that will feel fundamentally uneasy about those. And they may be older uh, voters. They might also be traditionally conservative voters. Um, I mean, you know, and also... When you put them all together, they do represent quite a broad block, particularly if you think about groups that basically align behind communitarian ideas, right? So sort of prioritise kind of notions of belonging over what they see as being endless change, endless universal uh, values. And I think that's broadly the, 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 the divide that's at play. Um, but I mean, we can't, you know, we can't characterise these groups as black and sure. white. Sure. So let's go back to your disparaging point. And here's here's where the problem is. If, let's take because as it was raised um, the set of attitudes which might be saying, I, I want traditional marriage, whatever that means. I mean, actually, we don't have any problems with traditional marriage in this country. Loads of people get married. Probably more people get married than ever before. It's not really what people mean. Uh, and it's not re- what we're talking about. Really, is um, should women work? Should women have equality? Uh, what kind of equality? Are women, men and women so fundamentally different that women's rights should be set? Well, that's the sort of thing we're talking so, about. Yes. And funnily enough, one of the things that never really emerges into this discussion very much is that one of the biggest changes which liberalism wrought in the last half century is much greater women's equality. 
Um, and that's why I say that in a funny kind of way, Margaret Thatcher was a quintessential liberal because she embodied the idea that women would actually go out and run whole countries, which I can assure, you're both younger than me, which I can assure you when I was a kid was by no means taken for granted. And there were people who would literally say women should not go out to work, they should be looking after the kids. And a lot of people probably back there silently etc as part of that silent group still believe that and want to say that now you tell me charlotte is that a backward view no, do you think not. it's a and backward I, I view would. that women should women should you right now should get those headphones right off and find yourself a husband if you haven't already and get you're of the age and get yourself a couple of kids because that's what society requires you to do would you regard that attitude as backward because i bloody well would i mean i i i obviously would would think that attitude is backward I also respect the fact that there are many women out there who would like to be able to stay at home and raise children and who would choose to do that. That wouldn't be my choice, but I respect the fact that there are many women. And if you look at polling, and this is something that, that again, Goodhart brings out in his book, um, there are plenty of women who actually are not career women. They're not, you know, these people doing high-flying jobs. They are people in communities working, you know, low-paid, low-skilled work who actually would rather be at home. And we don't have a culture at the moment which really respects that. I'm sorry. So what you're saying is, uh, effectively, we haven't framed policies which will allow women in poorer families to stay at home with their children. I'm absolutely not saying just poorer families. I'm saying that women should have a choice. And, And on the whole, the view is that women should be going out working. I want to work. I am working. If I had children, which I don't, but if I had children, I would want to continue to work. That doesn't mean that my worldview no, is necessarily the right one. No, I no, no. But what you, but what you have to, to recognise, but what you have to recognise is that the period that we've come out of is the period when that choice on your part was the one that was disparaged. Well, there's a recognition that there is a massive diversity of thought. There is a whole history here, but there's also a huge amount of disagreement. So, if this is where we are at the moment, what, what, what can we do to move forward? Matthew. Um, so I think unlike, uh, just to finish a, a final thought um, and pick up on something David said, um, so unlike many of my my colleagues, um, I'm pretty pragmatic on Brexit. Um, I don't view it as a, as, a, as a big sort of existential shock or challenge. I think that's partly because of where I've come from, a sort of working class background, a single mother. And, you know, I sort of grew up with a lot of people that ended up going, going sort of in that direction in general. And um, it does leave us in a very intriguing, interesting place as a country, which is, well, how do you reply to it? And David's view that, well, these people have basically said piss off and therefore we don't really have have a have an interest in 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 going down going down that road i think is is not particularly helpful so what what could you do um we know that our societies are polarized um and we know that 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 the root of that polarization is values far more than class um far more than things like income uh so we can stop kind of wasting our time in my view kind of going down these dead ends we can just say you know yep we've got to get to grips with value polarization so why don't we actually think about what would it take to try and rebuild on both sides, right? I'm not just here saying, well, it's all up to liberals to to kind of build f- fix a fence. It's it's up to everybody, uh, you know. And maybe this is my academic academic naivety coming through. But why don't we think about this moment in British politics now, as we get into sort of the nitty gritty of a, of a deal? Why don't we think about what would a unifying story? look like uh, rather than what would the story for my group look like and this is you know 
John Haight's take on value uh, convergence. But that, to me, is where there is most value to be had, which is conservatives are always going to have an upper hand because you know they, because of the way in which the uh, the, uh, the the value set that they hold is more is more open to being uh, mobilised. Uh, liberals are tending to be more angry and like to close down debate a bit too often in my book um but 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 what would that bridge look like uh and i think that's that's where the interesting work should happen not continually trying to make the case for why my side shouldn't reply or why that side has closed the door um and that's where i think there's a lot of work to be done but david will probably disagree with that david (laughs) is is there a bridge uh and what does that bridge look like well true liberals don't want to close down debate uh, typically um, and of course when we talk about part of the problem we have is that liberalism is actually such a wide word used in such a wide variety of contexts that actually we've now pretty much agreed that everybody's a liberal you are he is I am and uh, etc except when it comes to this and then all of a sudden we're not um, uh, taking Brexit aside I think Brexit actually is a real problem uh, it's, it's a really insoluble problem in the terms in which it's put largely because of the way in which it was done I don't want to get into the into the weeds but effectively uh, the way in which that debate was held the way in which we've discussed Europe for many years the way in which the uh, the the issue was handled by those who won the referendum makes it now insoluble as an issue in itself we're going to have to find a degree ways of trying to um, deal with each other um, outside the context of Brexit. I'm pretty sure about that. I mean, I think there's even a significant chance that Brexit won't happen. Um, uh, And in that case, what you'll begin to find is that there are other people, is that there really will be an act of assuaging and comforting and uh, and re-engagement to be done. But what really worries me at the moment is that before you even get remotely close to that, these identity rows are so predominant that it is almost impossible to get airspace to discuss things sensibly. I mean, what's been the story of early August? It's the anti-Semitism of the Labour Party and Boris and the Burka. Um, How can you have a proper discussion about how society comes together when you are fixated on tweets and Facebook um, uh, pages and so on. It's uh, finding finding the room to have this discussion. I mean, that's why it's really nice to do this podcast today uh, and so on is really... But, you know, in the end, well, more people will have heard of Boris and the Burka, won't they? Just one suggestion. I mean, so we're going into the autumn and the big debate will be what's the new immigration policy? And the, I noticed today people have tried to get that uh, off the ground. So what, here's an interesting piece to think about. What would be an acceptable new settlement on the Remain side that would actually deal with some of the concerns among leavers? That's that's the next interesting no, hold question on, hold, in hold British on. Why politics. Why not frame it the other way around? Why not frame it the other way and around? I feel, well, because I feel because, we're because, say, because well, the leavers well, the leavers won. So what's going to well, be no. an acceptable thing that leavers can? Well, we frame have to. Remainers yeah, but have. I feel we went we went from a nice moment of thinking that we'd had a good good discussion well, we that there was you know that there was a common narrative that, and a sort of you know a, a, a kind of common language that we needed to create to move forward and bring people. And, together. So, and then somebody mentioned uh, immigration, and then we had immigration <laughs> again, and then we kicked back off. So um, 
I am going to stop it there. We could talk for hours and hours more. Um, It's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you both. Um, Some pretty tricky uh, topics, but I think whilst we had a lot of disagreement, um, it was nonetheless a healthy discussion, um, I hope, for our listeners. Um, So thank you so much, David and Matthew. Thank you so much for listening. We very much hope you have enjoyed this podcast. If you haven't already subscribed, please do so. This has been the Unheard Weekly Podcast. Join us next week. 